tonight I confess I just need a good Christmas fix once in a while. But it's, it's a really beautiful song, again, highlighting that theme that we're going to be looking at of, of a world of darkness. But then that light breaks in through Christ, bringing peace. And so I ask you to grab your Bible, to turn to Luke chapter 8. That's the text we're going to be looking at. Luke chapter 8. And we're going to read there verses 26 until 39. And that's going to be our focus for this morning as well. So Luke 8. Luke 8, verses 26 to 39. Let's read that together. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes. And he had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then the people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. So again, we'll be focusing on that whole uh, section there. Let's ask the Lord's blessing on uh, our study in his word. Almighty, sovereign, gracious, and awesome God, as we spend some time now this morning digging into your word, we pray especially, Lord, for your Holy Spirit, that you would enlighten our minds and our hearts to see the things that you would have us see today from your word. We pray that you would keep us from distraction. We pray that you would um, that you would convict us of sin where necessary, that you would point us again to the cross. Oh Lord, help us in these things. We commit ourselves to you for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, the story that is immediately preceding our text here is, of course, when Jesus calms the storm in verses 22 to 
25. The disciples and Jesus had gotten into a boat to cross over the Sea of Galilee, and a storm swept across the lake, and Jesus in his power calmed that. They arrive then here at the country of the Gerasenes, we're told, which is opposite of Galilee, and it's primarily Gentile territory. And Luke, in this section here, this whole section and what proceeds uh, hereafter, has been showing in his gospel that Christ is not to be feared, but that instead salvation comes through him, that he is the one who brings peace. And so there's these four different stories, the first of which is the calming of the storm, where you see desperate disciples, but then you see Jesus who has power over the dangers of creation. And then in our story here, we see a man in in desperate straits, but we see Christ who has power over demons. And then the next section is a two-part story where we see a woman who is in a desperate medical situation. And there, Jesus has power over disease. And then also you see a desperate father whose daughter is about to die. But Jesus, Luke shows, has power over death. Jesus has power over the dangers of creation, over disease, over death. And in our text, specifically, Jesus has power over the demons. And you can see in just a a simple reading of our text that it is a pretty desperate situation. You read about this man, and he seems to be utterly hopeless, trapped by the powers of Satan. But our question this morning, of course, is he beyond hope? Our theme this morning is that the devil and his forces are powerful, but Christ has power over them. The devil and his forces, they are powerful, but Christ Jesus has power over them. And he has power to save even the most desperate, transforming them then into an instrument for his service. And so our first point power of darkness. We want to note the power of of Satan and of his forces. Well, in our post-enlightenment world, we're told constantly that God doesn't exist. That everything around us is just material. There is no kind of alternate dimension. There are no spiritual forces. Nothing like that. We don't need God. But the Bible, of course, tells us a very different story. There are spiritual forces And the devil and his forces, they are real. And they are powerful. And in our text here, we see the most intense form of demonic possession. It's really hard to imagine a more distressing situation than this. And so Jesus, as he arrives here on, uh, on Gentile soil, he disembarks from the boat and he's immediately met by this man. You can look at verse 27 there. What's the description of him? We're told that he's naked. He's naked. He's living in open shame. And this is something important for us to know. Our sin always brings shame. This is kind of the end of the road, as it were, for this man. Our sin brings shame. And this man here is living in this open shame. Luke tells us as well. He has no home. He's ostracized from society. And this too is important. This is what sin does. Sin ostracizes us. Sin pushes us away to the fringes. 
We don't want to be with God's people. This man has no home. He is rather, in fact, living among the tombs. So he's cut off from others, but living among the tombs. It's as if he's already dead. He's he's a walking dead man, as it were. It's a pretty hopeless situation. And when we compare the other Gospels, Matthew tells us that nobody could pass that way. No doubt because the authorities, even themselves, had many times bound this man, but couldn't keep him restrained. He would break out and break free. Mark tells us that he would be cutting himself with stones, crying out like a maniac. This man was a terror to others, but he was also a self-destructing terror to himself. It's really quite a frightful specimen of a deranged, mangled human being under the grip of Satan. A gloomy, awful, desperate, hopeless scene. But this, again, is the vivid reality and horror of living under the grip and the power of Satan's tyranny. Verse 29 there notes that many times he had been uh, seized. The demoniac would be apprehended, but then he would break out and he'd be driven by the demons off into the wilderness. This man was really reduced to just a complete terrorized and terrorizing brute. You can imagine if you lived in the area, you know where this man is, and you're not going to travel that same way. You're going to take the long way around to avoid him. Jesus, in verse 30, he asks him, What's your name? And he responds, My name is Legion. My name is Legion. Kids, do you know what an infestation is? An infestation. My parents, they, they bought a different house some years ago. And when we moved in, we realized that in one of the rooms, the joists were completely jam-packed with wasp nests. It was an absolute infestation of wasps. It was horrible. I heard a story one time about a family who had these black rat snakes in their house. And they didn't discover it until they found one of these snakes slithering through the play area where their kid was. That's an infestation. Well, my friends, this man here in our text has an infinitely greater problem. He is infested by a legion of demons. A legion was uh, usually comprised of about 6,000 troops plus maybe auxiliary soldiers. Mark, in his account, tells us that when the herd of pigs rushes to their death, there were about 2,000 of them. But I think that we can agree whether there were 6,000 demons or 2,000. There were a lot. This is a completely desperate, hopeless situation. We know the effects of, of one demon on a boy. Remember in the Gospels, that boy who was cast into the fire, cast into water under the power of the demon? We know from the book of Acts, the seven sons of, of Sceva, who are attacked by, by demons and they're, they're beat up and chased out of the house naked. But this is an absolute infestation of demons living within this man. How terrifying and hopeless. And so, my friends, we are simply reminded here of the power of Satan, the power of his forces. That this man was not able to be bound by the human authorities because he was bound by the dark forces of Satan. So what hope is there against such darkness? What hope for someone trapped under such power? Well, this is where we move to our second point. We see the power 
of the Savior, the power of the Savior. Because the man disembarking from the boat here is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory who has all power and authority. And maybe we can imagine, we've been reading through the account of Luke and there's almost this warlike scene in front of us, this man hurling, hurtling down towards Jesus and we might expect him to fall upon Jesus. Maybe we can imagine those dark storm clouds that were still over the lake after Jesus had calmed the storm. You might expect this clash, but the man doesn't fall upon Jesus. He falls at his feet. The man falls at his feet, we read in verse 28 there. He cries out, Son of Most High. Son of the Most High. That's an Old Testament designation for, for God whose name was Elion. The majestic, sovereign, the all-powerful creator, Lord. The king of the entire universe. In the story before, the, the disciples had asked this question, Who is this man who, who, is this man who calms the, the wind and the waves? Who is he? Well, what the disciples should have known the demons here recognize this is the Son of the Most High. We might think about Mary at the beginning of Luke's Gospel when she was told, the child that you will bear, he is going to be called Son of the Most High. God would give to Jesus David's throne and the, the kingdom and the reign of Christ would be forever. And these demons, they knew it. They knew it. Jesus is King and He has all power and authority. We can note further throughout our narrative, it's Jesus who is in complete control the entire time. The disciples aren't even featured in this narrative. You see there in verse 28 and verse 31 how they beg Jesus. Jesus is begged to, to allow this or that to happen because Jesus is the one in complete control. Verse 32 again. Jesus is the one who gives permission. Jesus is in control. It's interesting, too, to note the actions of Christ. Now, we don't want to make you know, this a key to interpret every story in the Gospels, but it's striking. You read through, Jesus doesn't act at all. There's no physical actions. It's almost as if he stands with his hands in his pocket. He simply speaks. And it's interesting because exorcisms in his day weren't uncommon. But usually exorcists, there would be a whole ritual, they would have magical objects or, or whatnot. Sometimes there would be you know, great flailing and a whole bunch of to-do. Jesus just stands there. And with a mere word of his power, he casts out the demons. Jesus, he's not here to show off his magical arts ability He's here to show that the kingdom of God is broken in. He's here as the true king to David's throne, the son of the Most High. And so Luke is showing us here in this section that Jesus, he is the one who has the power over the devil and over all of his forces. And that he is able to save. He's able to save the uttermost, even the most hopeless, even the most destitute. He is able to save. And that's exactly what we see if you look at verse 36. We're told that the man there is healed. The man is healed. That word that's used can be used for physical healing. It'll be used in the next section as well for that very thing. But it's also the word that the Bible uses 
for salvation, for restoration, salvation from sin, being brought from darkness to light. And that is exactly what happens here. Jesus Christ saves this man. Without lifting a single finger, Jesus has the power of forces, as it were, in a stranglehold. And he brings peace. He is this man's only hope. We can pause here and draw out a few points of application. I mentioned already that with the Enlightenment, uh, we, we live in a world where so often we're told it's just the material that exists. There's nothing beyond that. There is no spiritual realm. God doesn't exist. And when Christianity came into the West, it pushed out those overt, outward, visible forms of demonic activity. But we're also living in a world where, in certain ways, we're realizing that rationalism and the scientific age, actually, you know what, that hasn't panned out. It doesn't make sense of the world. There must be more to it. And so, interestingly, we see in our culture more and more that the door is being opened up again to explore this spiritual realm. I mean, think about it. Think about the prolification of books and of movies, right? It's everywhere. People are, again, dabbling in these, these dark arts. I've been told that, uh, actually, in, in Wisconsin, there is a fair number of witches here practicing these, these dark magic arts and, and speaking with these uh, beings in these alternate realities and so on and so forth. We can think of something like, as an, as an example, the New Age movement. It touts itself as being you know, this peaceful thing, and if we would all just harness our good energy, we could bring in this age of utopia, everything would be great. It's uh, worked out sometimes in business practices, oh, this positive business model and so forth. But the leaders of the New Age, they dabble in the dark arts. They're involved in, in mediumship. They're called channelers. They speak with these beings in alternate dimensions. We've got we to pause and remember, the devil is real. The Bible is very clear about that. And his forces are real. Now, not every book, every movie you come across is demonic. We need to pause and we need to, we need to take stock. What are we allowing into our own homes? We can be encouraged. Christians cannot be possessed by demons. We have the Spirit of Christ dwelling within us. Praise God for that. But we need to be careful about those things that we do allow in our world and into our homes, through our screens, through our media. We need to realize as well that we're living in an increasingly dark age. And perhaps the, the powers of darkness are going to become more evident. But then on the other hand, maybe you say, okay, well, I've never seen demon possession. It was... Bishop Ryle, several hundreds of years ago, over a hundred years ago, who said in his day already that in our modern world we don't see demon possession very much. But let's not forget the devil's fearful and power, power over the many hearts and souls, that he still urges many in whose hearts he reigns into self-dishonoring and self-destroying habits of life. We might not see a lot of demonic possession, but the devil still drives people to self-destructing wickedness. We're reminded of, of Ephesians 6, that we don't fight against flesh and blood. We fight against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There are two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. And it is war 
between the two. The Bible tells us about Satan, but it tells us, 1 John 3, that the reason the Son of God appeared was what? To destroy the works of the devil. To destroy the works of the devil. How did he do that? Well, our Savior, he did that when he died on the cross. When he put the rulers and the authorities to open shame, triumphing over them. The power of Satan was broken when our Savior hung on that cross and Genesis 3.15 was fulfilled that the seed of the woman crushed the head of the serpent. And in Christ's resurrection and ascension, as he reigns now as the Davidic king, and then through his return again, all of God's enemies, the enemies of the church, your and my enemies, will be put under the feet of Christ. And they will ultimately be cast into the abyss. Revelation tells us that, doesn't it? The devil and his kingdom cast into the lake of fire forever. Praise be to God. We want to note as well, this also has application for our evangelism. That as we go out into a dark world and confront people in their sins, call them to repentance and faith, we realize that Christ is powerful to redeem people. Have you ever written someone off? You and I, we've probably all seen the drunk, the junkie. They're too far gone. God can't save them. What about the rich person? They're too comfortable with their wealth. They're not going to come to Christ. What about the smart people? Super smart people, you know? No, they're, they know better. They're not, going to, they're not going to fall for this. We can easily write people off, can't we? The criminals, the ex-convicts. There's no hope for them. Or is there? We need to remember that the power of the cross, the power of the blood of Christ is able to redeem from the kingdom of darkness even the most hopeless. It redeemed you. It redeemed me. Can Christ not then redeem others as well? Certainly He can. We need to believe this. We need to be reminded of this, of the power of Christ that He redeemed this demoniac from a legion of demons. He is able, He is powerful, our Savior, to redeem others as well. And then once saved, this also has implication for personal sanctification. Are you struggling with unrepented sin? Maybe anger? Maybe drunkenness? Maybe laziness? Wasting time addicted to social media, to video games, to whatever it might be? Lust? Addiction to porn? These are grave and serious things. But even here, we're reminded once again of Christ's power and that He is able to redeem us, to bring us from darkness to light, that He is able to break the power of sin in our lives as well. And so for sanctification, again, we run to the cross. We go back to Christ again. Lord, help me. Help me defeat the sin. And we believe, Lord, You are able. You are able. Thanks be to God for this, that Jesus Christ came to break the power of darkness, to destroy the works of the devil. Paul reminds us in Romans 6, we know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. That we would no longer be enslaved to sin. That's the call of the Gospel on our lives each and every day. For one who has died with Christ has been set free from sin. 
Christ died to set you and I free from sin. We will struggle with sin until the day that we die. But we need to go back again and again to our Savior, to walk in step with the Spirit, to believe that as we fight against sin, He is able to give us victory. Praise be to God. Let's go back to Him again and again, to the Prince of Peace. And then to have confidence as well that He will finally and fully, at the end of the age, cast all evil into the lake of fire. Well, we got to move on here to our last point, the twofold response. You know in the text how the demons are expelled simply by the word of Jesus Christ. They enter the pigs. The pigs rush down the slope. We're not going to spend much time on that. Luke's focus, Luke, Luke doesn't. His focus is more on the man who is, is healed and also the response of, of those who witness this. And so we see here a twofold response. And in verse 34 there, we see the herdsmen. So they've just watched what's happened. And they've watched how hundreds and hundreds of their pigs rushed violently down to the slope, down the slope, into the lake to their watery graves. And what do they do? They flee. They flee. Well, you think about it, in a way you don't blame them. If you're watching National Geographic or something, you see a couple of hyenas, you know, chowing down on an animal, and if they all of a sudden turn tail and run, you know something more powerful is coming, right? And for these people, living in a world where they saw this kind of darkness, and if they knew this man, now they see, hold on a second, this powerful force of darkness that was here is now set free. Somebody greater is here. And for them, they flee in terror. Well, the townsfolk then show up because the herdsmen have gone and told them what happened. They've told them about how this man was was saved. And then, in verse 37 there, we see again, the people are seized, this is quite interesting, with a great fear. They're seized with a great fear. And that word there that Luke uses can be describing being distressed, being attacked, hedged in. They're hedged in, they're, they're guarded around by fear. They understand what's happened and they're terrified. And they, of course, ask the Lord to leave. And it's so ironic, the herdsmen reject the great shepherd. Well, in the first response then, we see there's a fear that might drive you to Jesus, but there is a fear that will drive you from Jesus. And, and rightly so. Jesus is the God-man. He is the King. He is the Son of the Most High. And one day, simply with the word of His power, He will destroy all evil. And so I I challenge you this morning too, if there's anybody here who doesn't know Christ, think about this. Christ is all-powerful, and one day He will destroy all evil. But today He calls us to come to Him to find peace in His salvation. So that's the first response. The people of the Gerasenes, they reject the Christ. But then secondly, the demoniac is now a disciple. This is so beautiful. So beautiful. In verse 35, we find him there sitting at the feet of Jesus, formerly naked and deranged, now sitting clothed in his right mind before the feet of Christ. And then look at verse 38. So beautiful. What does he ask? Simply to be with Christ. Lord, I want to be with you. 
Isn't that amazing? With the one who brought him peace. What a gorgeous response. But then, what does Jesus tell him? He says no. In verse 39, he says instead, this simple command. Go home. Go home and declare what God has done for you. And that is exactly what he does. He goes and declares how much Jesus has done for him. So the the beautiful irony here is that while Christ did not physically stay in the region of the Gerasenes, his homegrown evangelist, as it were, does. He stays. And he tells others how much Jesus has done for him. And so, my friends, this morning, the challenge for us as well is, do you think sometimes that only those who are formal missionaries, only those who are ordained as as pastors or evangelists or whatnot, only they are to proclaim the gospel? The challenge is for you and I. The same kind of thing. Go home. Wherever you live, who you rub shoulders with, tell others about Christ. Tell others how much God has done for you through the Savior. You know, it's, I was doing some studying for school this last week for a paper, and I actually came across something from the, the Synod of 2012. The Synod is just when all the, the churches, or all of our sister churches get together and meet, and they came up with this biblical basis for missions. And, and they said there that at the same time it's important that every member of our church understands that reaching out to the lost world is not exclusively for those who are ordained or those who feel specifically called to missions or evangelism. And then they cite this text, Luke 8.39. They say, while God does call men specifically equipped for preaching... Redeemed sinners are all made witnesses of Christ and should not be able to contain within themselves the goodness of our gracious Savior. It's not enough, they say, to confess Christ before the elders in the congregation because Jesus says if we deny Him before the world, He will deny us before the Father. You and I have the same call to go, to simply tell others the wonderful things that Christ has done for us, the salvation that we have found in Christ. And maybe, maybe you and I ask, maybe you and I have to stop and think, have we forgotten how much Christ has done for us? Then we're challenged again this morning to be reminded of it. To be reminded, Jesus has called you and me from darkness into his light through what he has done on the cross, through the working of his Holy Spirit. We need to rejoice in that again. We need to find our joy, our Christian joy in that once again. We have been saved. We have been redeemed. And that then is the fuel to drive us to go and simply those that we rub shoulders with to pray for those opportunities to tell others about Christ. To pray, Lord, bring people into my life that I can tell. Do you know what Jesus has done for me? Do you know He can do that for you too? This is the simple command Jesus gives to this man. Go declare what God has done for you. Well, as we end, I want to tell you just a quick story about the Gopha people of southwest Ethiopia. There were evangelists who wanted to take the gospel to other tribes. And so they go, they move their families, they build houses, they plant crops, they preach the gospel to the neighborhoods. People were converted. But too much had changed. 
And so there were less people going to the witch doctor, less tax collected for the cultic priests, less bribe money given to the governing officials. And so there was a police lieutenant sent to arrest one of the evangelists whose name was Atero. Atero. And so they chained Atero's wrists, they clapped his ankles in irons, and they paraded him around the marketplace as an example. And then he was ordered to leave town. Get out of here. We don't want you here. Well, Atero, he hops forward and, and he says to the officer, Sir, I, I have to tell you, I can go, but the gospel will stay. By the power of God, I planted Jesus in Gopha. He is planted in the hearts and the souls of the Gopha people. I can go, but Jesus will stay. The irony of our, our story, of course, Jesus left, but his homegrown missionary stayed. Jesus is not here in Wapan or in our surrounding cities and villages, but you and I are here. And he calls us to go, to share with others how much Christ has done for us. Will you do that? Will you do that this week? Look for opportunities. Some of us will be bold enough to go out to the streets, proclaim on the housetops what Jesus has done. Others of us will pray. Others of us will do just very simple things. But the challenge for us is to go and to tell that Christ is able to redeem us from the power of darkness. Let's pray. Almighty, gracious God, Lord, we bow before you and thank you so much for Christ. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the salvation that you have given to us. That in the name of Jesus, you have broken the power of sin. And that in the end, you will cast the devil and all of his forces. And all those who are in league with him, you'll cast them into the lake of fire. Oh Lord, so we, we pray that you would help us to rejoice in this message. To, to think about what a great salvation we have. And then to realize that if Christ is able to save this man, He is able to save anyone. And He is able to save even the most hopeless from the most desperate of situations. Oh Lord, give us this confidence as a church, as believers. Help us to truly believe this, to remind, be reminded of this. And